Good afternoon. It's Monday the 12th of July 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. And joining me via video link is David Scott. Welcome to the programme, David. Delighted to be here, Mike. Uh, right. Uh, that was quick. Um, right. We're going to get straight on because, uh, of course, last week, uh, I believe it was even this programme last week, uh, the well, do we call these two the Chuckle Brothers? They seem to be the new Chuckle Brothers. Uh, because, of course, uh, Boris is not allowed to make uh, a statement to um, uh, the press without a statement taking place to Parliament at the same time. So Sajid Javid at five o'clock this afternoon will be making a statement to Parliament at the same time Boris is making a statement to the press um, because he has to restate what the lockdown release situation is. So if you remember last week, he said that he would make the final announcement on the 12th, and that of course is today. So 5 p.m. tonight, apparently he's making this uh, statement. Um, and uh, so what's he talking about? He's talking about four tests, the vaccine deployment program, he, that has to be continuing successfully. Uh, evidence showing that vaccines are sufficiently effective in reducing hospitalizations and deaths, have, th that has to be there. Uh, infection rates, can't risk a surge in hospitalization, which would put unsustainable pressure on the NHS, is what they're saying. Um, and uh, their assessment of the risks is not fundamentally changed by the new variants of concern, they claim. So he is, however, going to urge the public to remain vigilant, exercise caution. Um, and whereas the story last week, David, had been that uh, masks were going to be of course, made the, the, the requirement by law that we wear masks was going to be removed. Uh, and there was quite a bit of pushback on that. Well, he seems to have caved into the pushback. Um, and in fact, he's now uh, going to be urging people to, uh, to continue to wear masks and masks. He believes, uh, according to some comment commentators, he believes that uh, masks will continue to be compulsory on trains and other public transport and so on, despite the fact there's no legal basis for that. Uh, because, of course, as we have progressed through this uh, uh, system, uh, the requirement for law underpinning anything has disappeared. Um, the latest data is going to be presented by uh, Chris Whitty, I believe. Uh, but anyway, let's briefly have a look at what uh, Boris uh, has to say here. We are tantalizing, sorry, we're tantalizingly close to the final milestone in our roadmap out of lockdown. But the plan to restore our freedoms must come with a warning. So there you go. Because cases are up 27% in a week, uh, with 31,772 recorded yesterday, um, and uh, a growth in the number of uh, hospitalizations as well, and deaths. Um, so hospitalizations up 57% in a week, with 563 hospitalizations yesterday alone. And David, of course, when you focus on percentages, uh, when you're heading from zero upwards, uh, the numbers tend to sound very big. Oh, this is right, but 563 sounds like, you know, rather a lot of people. But Javid was um, in, the, in the press during the last week saying that uh, his department are predicting that the backlog of NHS cases, the backlog of untreated cases from the, the entire close down of the NHS, uh, will be 13 million cases. So I'm... I'm Confused as to how we're not going to put the NHS in, in, a, in an overwhelmed state when it seems to be in an overwhelmed state if there's not one single COVID case. Uh, so this is uh, a very important point and we've got to reiterate it once again. We'll be coming on to hospitalizations in a minute. Um, but this is a key point. 
Uh, hospitals are, are already overrun, and we've seen over the over the, the late spring, early summer period, a number of hospitals, including Derford Hospital in the uh, in the Plymouth area, um, going to their highest alert level because of the stress that they are under, particularly in accident and emergency. And of course, part of the reason of this for this is because uh, GPs aren't doing their jobs. Um, in most cases, some are, but in most cases, they're not. Um, so. We have the situation that hospitals are already at maximum capacity. Um, the narrative, therefore, as we head into the autumn, is going to be one of stress on the NHS. But, uh, David, that stress is already there, and it's been engineered through this last 14 months of, co of lockdown policy and restructuring of, of hospitals and the way hospitals and the health service does its business. Um, so once again, we're going to be pushed into a narrative of the government's making. Yes, yeah, so we've got, uh, just checking here, Aberdeen hospitals, we picked at random, two further hospitals have been uh, given a rare code black status uh, due to rising pressure. They attribute this to the third wave of COVID. I don't actually believe that. Um, so Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and Dr. Gray's Hospital in Elgin uh, are both essentially at capacity. They can take no more cases. And this has been replicated all across the country. Now, this is against a background of... Currently 5.3 million, they're, they're expecting it to increase during the summer to 13 million backlog cases. Uh, and we've got um, uh, the, uh, hospitals under code black turning away regular uh, elective surgery. So um, a situation that's bad is going to get worse, irrespective of the COVID figures. Uh, indeed. Uh, but look, David, we don't need to worry because... In spite of all this, as we come out of lockdown, we've got to rediscover summer. Now, this is rediscover with a capital R and summer with a capital S, because this is another trademark which has come out of the government. So we can understand uh, where this £1.6 billion of advertising and media money is going. Um, OK, so uh, what's this about? The government's rediscover campaign was launched uh, today to help inspire families to get out and about safely and make the most out of summer. Uh, so let's just have a quick look. Uh, they're, they're talking about all kinds of things. We're going to teach children to read. I'm, this is confusing. I thought we were supposed to be doing that anyway, but we're going to teach children to read. Uh, there's going to be all kinds of creativity. Uh, there's going to be sport available over the summer. Uh, we need to get out back into nature. Uh, we need to visit our heritage once again, and we need to get into a community spirit. Uh, this all kind of kinds of stuff is going on, uh, whether it's visiting the places that inspired your favorite books, trying out a new sport or even learning how to code. The campaign will show families that there are plenty of new activities to try wherever they live throughout the duration of the campaign. Each week of the summer holidays will promote a separate theme from sport and creativity to nature and heritage to save the children. Sorry, a save the children survey has shown how the pandemic has negatively impacted the social lives of our children and young people with a third of children playing alone more and a quarter having played less sports since the pandemic, raising concerns about the impact on their well-being. To help combat this, the government is encouraging families to rediscover summer and enjoy the range of leisure activities on offer uh, a, Sorry, after a year of missed opportunities. So David, uh, we're going to run a psychological operation on everybody, uh, completely depress them, uh, put them into a state of mental uh, health problems, uh, and then we're going to offer them all kinds of ways back out of that again, but in a carefully engineered way, I suspect. Yes, and I, I thought those statistics sounded very dodgy. Um, 
a quarter of children are playing less sport. Really? In, in this environment where people couldn't actually go in, and assemble in a group of more than two, um, where sports days were cancelled at school, where uh, sports clubs were being closed down for the duration, three quarters of the children didn't play less sport. I don't believe that for a minute. So it's, it's minimising the actual impact they've had. And then they're trying to control the narrative as we, as we come out of this to what, I don't know, take the credit, distract from the blame. Now, I think uh, I'm just going to uh, uh, ask you about this phrase that you've just used coming out of this. Of course, we're not coming out of anything, are we? We're, we're being moved in a, in a direction we would not otherwise have gone in. Yeah, I mean, we're not... Um... <sighs> We 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 are still we're still completely unaware of of what the long term plan is here. We've got a, a PR campaign that's saying that we're trying to come out of it, but you know, but masks, but this, but that, but second wave, third wave. Um, this is in the summer where there's nothing happening. Uh, what happens when we get to late autumn and the normal seasonal flu hits again? I mean, can anyone have any confidence? That they're not just going to run the same narrative all over again. No, I, I can't. Think, I, I don't. I don't see how. I don't see how anyone could trust anything the government says on this, uh, or indeed the opposition, who are always pushing for even more tyranny. Um, this this now seems to be a cul-de-sac, an intellectual cul-de-sac that they that they can't escape, and don't seem to want to escape, and it's just going to keep going. So. At what point are we actually going to address the reality of the situation? I don't see any sign of that um, in the uh, corridors of power, in the parliaments. There's no truth being told to power. There's no honesty with the British public um, about the harm that's been caused or about the duration and, and, and real forward plans for um, what we're amongst. Um, indeed. Well, okay, well, let's uh, look at how they're going to continue to build this narrative then. So uh, uh, this is Euro News. I believe this was also in the uh, Daily Mail as well uh, and others. Uh, woman 90 dies after being, infect being infected with two COVID variants at the same time. So uh, this uh, report saying that Belgian science scientists on Sunday reported that an elderly woman had died from uh, COVID-19 after being infected with the alpha and beta variants at the same time. Uh, molecular biologist, uh, one of the sorry, one of the molecular biologists that they uh, quoted here says, uh, "This is one of the first documented cases of co-infection with two variants of concern uh, of SARS-CoV-2." So you'll note first of all uh, that she's using the uh, the trademark, the British uh, term, variants of concern. Um, the 90-year-old woman died, so she was 90 years old, died in March uh, after being admitted to a hospital in the Belgian town of uh, uh, Alst following several falls. Uh, she was not vaccinated against COVID-19 and tested positive for the disease on arrival, uh, but quotes a good level of oxygen saturation and no signal, signals of uh, respiratory disease. So in other words, she was asymptomatic. No symptoms means no disease, folks. Uh, that's the way it works. However, she rapidly developed worsening respiratory symptoms and died five days later. So she got into hospital and then uh, started to uh, fall ill. Um, and uh, 
but the doctors say it's difficult to say whether co-infection with two variants played a role in the rapid deterioration of the patient's condition. Um, so David, a 90-year-old uh, lady uh, sadly passes away following a number of falls, uh, goes into hospital, and uh, but she pos tested positive with a PCR test. They did a genomic sequence and discovered two variants at the same time, uh, and, uh, and that's the story. The testing is the story. We see it all the time. The testing is the story. The testing is the justification. The testing is everything. Um, the tendency of elderly people to go into hospital in, in a frail condition but rap rapidly deteriorate when they get there is um, not the story, but I think it should be. Um, yes, and of course it should be. And, and of course that is... Uh... Uh, an issue that's been going on for much longer than COVID. Uh, but to stay with the double jeopardy theme for a second, uh, we have the Yorkshire Post here, uh, who is saying, uh, Chief Nurse of York uh, and Scarborough Hospitals warns that their severely ill COVID-19 patients have been double jabbed. Um, so again, we're uh, making sure that uh, anybody that has decided to get a vaccine understands that they're still absolutely at risk and therefore there's still justification for further lockdown and further limitations on people's uh, uh, liberty. Uh, residents of York and Scarborough have been warned that they can still get sick from COVID even if they have had the vaccine. Um, so this is quoting uh, Mrs. McNair, Heather McNair, who's the chief nurse at uh, York and Scarborough Teaching Hospitals, NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, there are currently 15 patients in the hospital with COVID. Uh, and uh, last month were none. Um, so she's told a meeting of uh, North Yorkshire County Council, Scarborough and Whitby Area Committee uh, that some of those that are in hospital had received both uh, doses of the COVID vaccine. Uh, and she said, the, the message I'd like to share with you all is that some of their patients uh, are double vaccinated. Uh, this is a disease that can still affect you and still make you poorly when you're double vaccinated. Uh, we have, we've got a ward at the moment full of COVID patients in our hospital that is not going away anytime soon. So, David... The question in many people's uh, minds, therefore, many people that took the vaccine is, why did they bother? Why indeed? I mean, what is, uh, do you actually have a, a handle on, on this? It's a very slippery concept. If you're double vaccinated, you can still get COVID. You can still get seriously ill by COVID. And you can still transmit COVID to other people. Okay. But vaccination is essential to get out of the COVID crisis. And, and the, these, these messages are coming out of the government simultaneously. And no one in a, a position of power seems to notice the conflict. There doesn't seem to be any problem. Um, I don't have a, a, even a proper understanding of what the narrative is at this point. Right, it's it's what the, the the vaccine helps a little bit, but it's still vital to get out of. You know, I don't I don't get what the point is. If the vaccination is getting a an immune system response, we know the immune system can deal with COVID because of experiences on cruise ships and things. Um, what's what's going what's going wrong the the entire the entire narrative seems to be disjointed i don't any longer understand quite what they're claiming for the vaccine because there are so many conflicting 
statements and, and conflicting narratives coming out from the government and from the state and from the NHS, what are people supposed to think? Um, well, they're not supposed to think is the key point. But uh, look, you can't have a vaccine that works and at the same time uh, tell people that uh, unvaccinated people are a danger to them. Um, you can't have a vaccinated vaccination that works and at the same time say uh, you need to continue with lockdown policy. Um, and, and of course, one thing that isn't being mentioned is the principle of pathogenic priming. Uh, many, many uh, experts, if we want to call them that, uh, because of the, the way that word has been used in the last uh, 14 months, I'm, I'm loath to call people that are serious uh, experts in the field experts. But anyway, many people saying that, in fact, uh, the real risk to people in this coming winter is going to be amongst those who are uh, double vaccinated because their immune systems have been primed in a particular way uh, and uh, they're much more going to be much more susceptible uh, to the effects of variants. But nonetheless, uh, no matter the truth of that, you're absolutely right. There is no consistent messaging coming out here. And of course, uh, Brian would say uh, that that is because it is intended to keep people destabilized and uncertain about what is uh, going on around them. Uh, they're much more likely to just accept the narrative in that case. Um, but, uh, you know, this brings me to the psychological attack because we highlighted since May last year, one of the first uh, to, to make this public, uh, that the behavioral uh, teams within the uh, SAGE group, uh, SPY-B and so on, and the behavioral insights team, running a psychological operation against people in the UK to ramp up the levels of fear uh, to make them compliant through the levels of fear. Now, we have seen and reported on over the last 14 months um, some pretty draconian stuff going on in Australia and particularly in New South Wales. But I think they have surpassed themselves with this little video that's doing the rounds at the moment. Uh, so let's have a look at this. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. So, David, what do you make of that? Wow. I mean, that's that it's just naked, naked fear porn. This is... <laughs> bearing in mind they're, they're pushing a vaccination that, that you're meant to have informed consent, which means weigh up uh, the pros and cons in a, in a rational manner and form your own um, independent view they're they're completely undermining any idea of informed consent. This is simply state coercion. It's quite naked now. It's quite obvious. We, the state is going to coerce you by fair means of foul into getting the vaccine. And that is unlawful. That's an assault on each and every person who's tricked into getting the vaccine by methods like that. They have been assaulted. And we'll only find out with time what the effects of that are on each individual victim, and, I, and I'm starting to view, I'm starting to view the, the the majority of the people in this country who have been vaccinated. When you see, when you see the nature of the messaging that has persuaded them to do it, I'm starting to see them as victims now. 
Um, yes, indeed. Now, uh, the news I'm hearing, I haven't seen anything to confirm it yet, so we'll just say that this is unconfirmed at the moment. But the news I'm hearing from the United States is that uh, um, once these vaccinations get their full approval, uh, that it's very likely that Biden is going to head in the direction of attempting to make vaccination mandatory. I'm hearing noises from France in the same direction. Um, so I would like to know what the process is going to be to get them from this emergency use uh, authorization that, uh, that that we have at the moment to a full uh, uh, approval for use. But nonetheless, um, this is not uh, looking good in terms of the direction of travel. No, and, and before mandatory comes making your life impossible if you're unvaccinated, this has been openly advocated on such um, news channels as CNN by experts. And uh, they're talking about um, uh, twice weekly um, lateral flow tests to see if you're infected, um, huge restrictions on your movement, um, compulsory mask wearing and all this sort of thing for the unvaccinated. To, to force people to be vaccinated by simply making their, their life so impossible that they just go, okay, I'll, I'll do it then. And uh, again, undermining consent and assaulting people and fooling people and coercing them. This seems to be the policy. Whether they'll go as far as actual, we will pin you down and stab you type um, uh, mandatory, or we will jail you if you refuse uh, mandatory, um, requirements remains to be seen. Particularly in the United States, I think there would be some um, sizable and probably well-armed pushback against that. Um, but anything's possible at this stage. What we've seen coming out of Australia, America, across Europe and our own country, we wouldn't have believed two years ago. Indeed. Now, uh, the latest uh... Uh, adverse reaction statistics from uh, the Yellow Card scheme are available on yellowcard.ukcolumn.org. Um, a little bit late uh, this week because uh, those numbers didn't go up until Saturday, and that's because the MHRA was late in releasing their spreadsheets. But uh, nonetheless, uh, many people still confused about why there is a difference between the number of reports and the number of reactions. And the answer to that is simply that, uh, of course, there are 309,272 reports so far. Uh, and this is uh, up until, well, this report run date was the uh, 1st of July. Um, and, uh, well, that's the number of reports, 309,000, uh, 1,037,376 reactions. And the reason for that is because, of course, each report may have one or more reactions in each report. Now, what's really uh, interesting about the data that the MHRA provides, which is utterly useless for any real analysis, um, is that, of course, they don't tell us, they don't allow us to link uh, combinations reports directly back to a particular case. So we can't sort of look at a case and say, well, that produced uh, this reaction, that reaction, and another reaction. And therefore, we can't look for patterns in reactions. So they can continue to say, well, uh, the majority of what's going on here is simply what they call background noise in the sense that they, you know, if somebody has had a blood clot or somebody has had uh, pulmonary, uh, some kind of heart attack or, or something like that, that that probably would have happened anyway to somebody at that age. Um, so we can ignore all these numbers. That's generally the message that we're getting from the MHRA. Uh, but of course, uh, it would be much easier to identify whether these reactions um, are linked to the vaccines if they are coming up in combinations that you don't normally see uh, in the real world. 
uh, but the data isn't available to provide that kind of analysis. Um, that is so the number of deaths associated uh, with the yellow card data so far is uh, 1,440. Um, and David, as you've said many times, this of course is passive data um, and uh, probably uh, definitely vastly underestimates the true picture. Yes, we'll come to this again uh, later in the news, but uh, the idea that the idea has been subtly pushed in certain places that because it's a passive database, because essentially anyone can report um, a reaction if they perceive that they've had a reaction, um, this makes it open to over-reporting. This is the suggestion that's been made in several areas. Now, of course, this is entirely false. We know from MHRA that they reckon they got maybe 2% of minor reactions and maybe 10% of serious ones. Um, the VERS database in America has long been considered to be about 1% of the true level of harm. But even though they're picking up a very small proportion of the overall cases, they have been successful in the past in flagging problems, in raising issues that uh, we've got, we've got serious, serious problems with adverse reactions and vaccines and other medicines have been pulled um, as a result, been withdrawn from use as a result of things like the VERS passive database. What's changed now is that the, the data's there more than it's ever been. I mean, the, the, these databases have never shown this amount of harm, ever, on, on any basis. And the, the regulators are constantly saying, there's nothing to see here, move along. Everything's fine. There's no causal link. So they're ignoring the warning signs. The warning signs are there, they're simply being, being disregarded by MHRA and CDC and others. And the, the excuses given, well, you know, anyone can report to these databases, where the reality is only a tiny fraction of the true level of harm is being recorded. They know this. They know this and they are lying to us. Uh, indeed. So let's head over to the CDC in the United States then. And, uh... V-SAFE COVID-19 Vaccine Pregnancy Registry. I'll get around for that later on. You absolutely sorry will. About, sorry about Look, we're that. Supposed to be a, we're supposed to be a slick uh, production here. Yeah, yeah. We are supposed to be a slick production, and occasionally it goes wrong, like last week, Mike. Um, the, uh, yes, so the CDC... Um, are looking into pregnancy safety. So they, they've got a, a program called VSAFE, uh, COVID-19 uh, Vaccine Pregnancy Registry. So if you're pregnant, um, you can receive a COVID-19 vaccine. There is currently no evidence that any vaccines, including COVID-19 vaccines, cause fertility problems. However, data are limited about the safety of COVID-19 vaccines for people who are pregnant. CDC established V-Safe. Do you like the branding? V-Safe. Very yeah. safe. V-Safe. Uh, COVID-19 Vaccine Pregnancy Registry to learn more about the issue. So we call it V-Safe when we don't know whether it's safe or not and we're trying to gather the data. Okay. So that's what they're doing. And they've got some data. And they've done a report on the data, preliminary findings of mRNA COVID-19 vaccine safety in pregnant persons. So I noticed this, it's not uh, pregnant women. 
No, it's not pregnant women, it's pregnant persons because men can be pregnant too in the crazy world of the CDC. Uh, so from this run from uh, 14th December 2020 to 28th February 2021, so it's very early in the vaccine programme. Um, conclusions, preliminary findings did not show obvious safety signals amongst pregnant persons. You're going to say more study is required. But I want you to remember that phrase. Preliminary findings did not show obvious safety signals amongst pregnant persons, pregnant women to the normal people amongst us. Now, this is very interesting because in an in a, in a article we'll get to slightly later, this was being highlighted as an error. And it's been highlighted on some uh, information that's circulating on the internet has been grossly in error. And some of the claims made don't seem to be correct either, but I decided to have a dig into this. Um, so concerning that initial study by the CDC, um, the New England Journal of Medicine published uh, an editorial piece by Laura Riley, MD, looking at that study and commenting on it. And she, um, recorded the data that wasn't clear in the original study. It said amongst V-safe pregnancy registry participants, 28.6% received a vaccine in the first trimester, 43.3% in the second trimester, and 257 in the third trimester. So only just over a quarter of the women in the study were vaccinated in the first trimester, which is when most of the miscarriages spontaneous abortions, they call them, occur. So it's a very strange study in that it's, it's skewed away from when you would normally get um, spontaneous abortions. So that led me to think, well, just if we correct for that, what do we see? Because what they're saying is overall, over, there's something like 800 and odd people, 872 people in the study. And the number of spontaneous abortions, miscarriages, is about, uh, about 14% or something like this, which is entirely in the normal range. Right? It's, it's, they say it's, it's between 10 and 25% of pregnancies end in, end in spontaneous abort abortion, end in miscarriage, which is a, a, a broad range, but it is in there somewhere. So they're saying that the number of miscarriages was normal. And they don't, they don't analyze it any further than that. But if you do, something quite interesting occurs. Now, I looked for some figures from America on um, what the normal level of miscarriage spontaneous abortion rate is. So here's a site, uh, Nathan T. Thomas, MD, uh, OBYN, and um, uh, he, he's um, quoting that most of the, the spontaneous abortions occur in the first trimester, the first 13 weeks of pregnancy. He says 15 to 20 percent um, of recognized pregnancies end in spontaneous abortion. So that gives you 15 to 20 percent. So if we take a, med a medium figure there, 17 and a half percent, that's the figure I've used to do some rough calculations. That's how many pregnancies would normally end in abortion. 80 percent of those miscarriages occur in the first trimester and 20 percent in the second. Spontaneous abortion is defined as up to 20 weeks, so there's, there's none in the third by definition. It would be called a stillbirth then. So if you do the calculations, what you get is um, 
they had 827 people. They had 28.6% of those were vaccinated in the first trimester. And you would expect normally 80% of 17.5% of that to, to result in um, miscarriages in, in spontaneous abortion. And that would give you 33. And if you do the same calculation for the people who, who were vaccinated um, in the, the second trimester, that would give you another 21 spontaneous abortions that you would expect then. So that's a total of 54. They actually recorded 115. That's more than double. That's 213% of the expected number. Now, that's, that's for me. That, I did those calculations. I'm no expert in looking at medical stats. I'm reasonably au fait with statistics, but I'm no expert in this field. So, you know, a, a health warning on that. But for the CDC to say no obvious safety signals and they're getting more than double the number of miscarriages that, uh, compared to what would be normal, that seems to me to be deeply concerning. Deeply concerning. I'm not really sure what to say. I would be very interested to see a similar calculation done in this country. But if anybody, of course, David, uh, disagrees with uh, your calculations there, they, sh they can get in touch. Yeah, please do. I mean, this is, this is me looking at this, just looking at the stats and, and looking at the published studies. It wasn't a huge amount of data I had available. Um, if anyone out there is um, is au fait with these figures and, and wants to um, comment on this, we'd be, we would be delighted to hear from you. Okay, and then let's move on to a, a paper then that was published uh, a few weeks ago, The Safety of COVID-19 Vaccinations. We should rethink that policy. Um, this paper has been retracted, uh, but not by the authors. Well, yes, this is this is a new definition. Words are changing meaning all the time. Uh, one of the words that's changed meaning this week is the word retraction. So this uh, we reported on this, I think, briefly at the time. Safety of COVID-19 vaccinations. It was uh, some scientists who were German and Polish for the most part. Um, they looked at the um, number of vaccinations required to save one to prevent one death based on data coming out of uh, an Israeli field study. And they looked at um, the number of, of fatalities based on reporting through European and particularly Dutch um, reporting systems equivalent to the yellow card system. And what they concluded was for every three people you save by vaccinating, you're killing two and um, leaving um, 16 or more um, seriously impaired or disabled. And therefore, conclusions, this lack of clear benefit should cause governments to rethink their vaccination policy. So this caused a bit of a stir. Some people re resigned from the board of the magazine. Um, they put out first a warning that they were concerned about it, and then they put out a retraction. Um, the retraction reads, the journal retracts the articles, the safety of COVID-19 vaccines, we should rethink the policy cited above. Serious concerns were brought to the attention of the publisher regarding misinterpretation of data leading to incorrect and distorted conclusions. The article was evaluated by the editor-in-chief with the support of several editorial board members. No, it's not, it's been through peer review and it passed peer review, but the editors getting involved. 
they found the article contained several errors that fundamentally affect interpretation of the findings. Now, these errors were related to, um, again, the nature of the passive reporting databases and whether if if someone is uh, if someone reports a, a death as an outcome, that's a causal link or simply a suspicion, and, and and can you view it as a causal link? So it was all based on essentially the view that the number of deaths being recorded is is way more than the real number of deaths we think, whereas we actually know that these these systems hugely underreport and underrecord the deaths. So that was the basis that they threw the article out on. And then they said the, not, the, the authors were notified of the retraction and did not agree. So um, retraction means when I say something and then I decide, no, that was wrong, I retract it. I, I can do that. If you say something and I think it's wrong and I silence you and make sure that you can't say that again, even though you still think it's right, that's called censorship, right? They've changed the meaning of the word. So, so Vaccines Magazine are now censoring their authors. They're not retracting anything. They are censoring. It would be nice if they used the right word. Yeah, yes, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to uh, Nadim Zahawi, uh, a.k.a. Anton LaVey. Uh, what's he been saying? We're extremely grateful, he says, to all the brilliant businesses uh, who have supported the vaccination program so far. Um, so Amazon... Uh, Molson Coors, Sky and 3UK have joined the growing list of leading employers encouraging their staff to get vaccinated. Uh, Amazon is actually providing, uh, globally, is actually providing pop-up vaccination centers for their staff on site. So uh, you can go and get your vaccine uh, on site. Uh, I'm not sure whether that applies to the UK, but certainly other countries that's, uh, that's going on. Um, so, they've, so these companies have joined forces with the government to encourage their employees to get COVID-19 vaccines. Over the last six months, leading businesses have pledged their support in promoting positive vaccination messaging uh, and encouraging their staff to get the vaccine to ensure workplaces are safe and employees are protected from COVID-19. But we've already heard this morning that employees aren't protected from COVID-19 once they're vaccinated because people are ending up in hospital with double uh, jabs. Uh, employers involved in, the jab, in, in this drive include ASDA, Slimming World, Metro Bank, Santander, Nationwide, Severn uh, Trent, Merlin Entertainments, uh, as well as the ones we just mentioned. Um, and uh, the companies have all also committed to giving pay time off work for employees. Uh, but as we say, you don't have to take time off work. Uh, if you're at Amazon, you can just uh, pop into the canteen or something and, and you can get it there. Uh, and they say to, in order to galvanize more leading businesses and employers, uh, LinkedIn has also committed resources to free advertising to help target CEOs and directors to support their staff and encourage employees to get both vaccine doses by signposting to the government's employer's toolkit. So there you go, David. Um, uh, this is perfect. Well, I noticed there that they were putting out positive vaccine messaging. Not accurate. They didn't say we're putting out accurate. They didn't say we're putting out balanced. They didn't say we're putting out a, a fair view of the pros and cons. They didn't, they didn't say we're helping um, our, our staff um, reach an independent view um, and exercise um, their right to consent. No, we're just putting out positive vaccine messaging. So that means that they are suppressing negative vaccine messaging. 
So the people, when people are dying of blood clots, uh, when people are dying of heart attacks, when people are being left um, blind or deaf, all the information that's that's recorded in uh, in the yellow card system, well, they're not putting that out by definition because it's not positive. So they're suppressing that. I, I wonder seriously if their legal departments have actually considered the liabilities that they might be undertaking here. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, well, let's uh, have a look at this. This is from Business News Wales. Uh, the government is backing uh, an impact investment task force. Um, and uh, so what is this? It's industry-led impact investment task force. Um, it's going to harness private finance at scale to ensure, and here's the key, the key word in this, to ensure a sustainable recovery from COVID. So this is... Uh, uh, it's going to be headed up by experts in the in impact investment, an approach where investors take financial decisions that have a positive impact on the environment or society, uh, and uh, like investing in companies that produce affordable solar panels as well as improving the bottom line. Uh, it's to set to set to develop recommendations that will be made uh, to foreign Commonwealth, sorry, foreign and de development ministers uh, in the financial sector globally. Uh, the task force is going to explore standards for measuring the social or environmental impact of financial investments, uh, financial products that best mobilize investment while also having a positive environmental and or social impact. Uh, but really, the social impact isn't quite so important because this is about COP26, uh, which is taking place in Glasgow, as we know, in a couple of months' time. David, so we're going to build back better um, using uh, an industry-led impact task force and bring private finance in to make sure that the businesses that deserve to continue to operate, if you remember what Mark Carney said, if you're not doing what we want you to do, i.e. you're not uh, becoming green, as green as is possible to get, you will be bankrupted. Uh, and So this will invest in and make sure that the companies that uh, are really important to bring back following the COVID lockdown and the devastation that it's had economically, uh, that uh, it's only the right businesses that are uh, going to be uh, supported. Uh, how could that how could that possibly be any better? If you take out the word green and you substitute the word Aryan, you have an exact copy of 1930s Nazi German economic policy. It's spectacular. It's well worth reading into exactly what they did and how they did it. Uh, it was socialism on their, in their scale of things, right? So based on race in this case, rather than based on class. But it was, um, it was, it was exactly what's happening here. Government control and um, private owners are allowed to stay in control, but only if they do exactly what the state says. And if, they, and if they refuse to do what the state says, they'll be driven out. So the state decides what's going to happen. The state centrally plans everything. Uh, the state um, allocates resources. Uh, the state does uh, all of these things. And um, private owners can hold on to its coattails and become kind of junior managers in their own businesses um, if they so choose. And providing they obey. And of course, this results in economic catastrophe, in economic collapse. Um, 
Now, the, 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 the solution to that in the 1930s was, of course, war. If you go and to places like um, Czechoslovakia and Poland and France and steal all their stuff, um, you, you, can, you can keep everything, you can keep the show on the road a little while uh, longer. But this, this particular policy is um, uh, being run across the whole of the West. Um, it's been run against the background of huge money printing. We'll get to that maybe shortly. Um, on on uh, vast monetization of government debt. This is a level of economic uh, experimentation we have never seen before. Uh, I, I don't know how it will end, but I fear it will not be good. Um, but we're, we're coming out of COVID. That's the main thing. Now, in the meantime, uh, uh, lawyers for liberty have, uh, have been, uh, well, you better, you better explain what they've been up to. Well, they've been serving um, notices, um, in this case, on uh, a vaccine centre itself pointing out that the people in the vaccine centre um, have uh, personal liability for any harm that they're causing um, and pointing out the uh, criminal nature, the unlawful nature of the activities that are being undertaken. Uh, we've talked about consent um, earlier. Uh, that, I think that's just one of their um, concerns with what's actually been undertaken by the state. Uh, so the police were called um, because um, that's what happens these days if, you, if you're a dissident, the police are called. And there's a little exchange between, uh, it's Anna de Busseret, uh, and I'm sorry if I mangled that name, uh, and, uh, and some police officers, and um, uh, where she explains her view in the Lawyers for Liberty's view of just what uh, the legal requirements are. Uh, the policeman's response is quite interesting. He tries to talk over Anna at one point and um, fails. And uh, at the end, um, there's a little bit of dissent from the policeman as he tries to record his, his viewpoint as well. Um, and if you listen to the very end, there's quite a telling little final uh, objection from the police officer. It is my constitutional duty as a lawyer. I'm also a retired army officer. I serve and protect. I'm here under two oaths. My colleague is also a lawyer. Our principle one of the code of conduct is to uphold the rule of law and administer justice. So we are here complying with our duty. They can refuse to do all of this. It's all evidence. We will serve it on them regardless. And they have to understand that each and every one of them is liable on a personal capacity. Understand okay. all that. So thank that's you. the law. No, no, thank you for clarifying. That's the law. Do you know I'm the messenger? Okay. He's the messenger. I'm going to finish what I'm saying now. Yes, okay. Okay, so, yeah, absolutely. No one's taking any paperwork off you guys today. No. I understand. And right now, at the moment, the law is these vaccines are legal. Now, what, how you feel about they're them? They're not. They're not legal. The criminal law is right now, they're legal. Okay. They're not well, legal. Sorry, you are not a lawyer. Right, we so lawyers are telling you they are not legal, they are not lawful, they're unethical, okay. they're immoral, have, and they are a breach of both domestic and international laws. And because I have to correct you, I have to correct you, and I will carry on talking, even if you interrupt me, because you've made a statement of fact for the public record that these vaccines are legal. That is wrong, which is why we are serving these notices. So for the public record, 
These are not legal. Well, that was quite entertaining, didn't she do well? Um, this is pointing out that um, a, a harmful process that's without any justification is unethical and immoral and therefore cannot be legal. Um, this is a very um, clear-sighted analysis that uh, this group of lawyers is putting forward. And you could, you could sense the unease in the police when faced with this analysis. And I liked, I liked the bit at the end where he corrected her and uh, pointed out that, that it's not God's laws. The police don't uphold God's laws. And I think there the policeman was actually correct. Uh, yes. Uh, now, a conservative woman here. Uh, the scandal of the rushed rollout. Censored vaccine expert speaks out. So, yes, this is Dr. Robert Malone. He was um, a graduate student back in the 80s uh, when the mRNA um, technology was developed. And he he was involved in that development and his name was on many of the patent applications. Um, the companies that owned those patents basically stopped any further, they, they patented everything so no other firm could use the technology. So the whole, the whole field um, ceased to move forward for 20 years until the patents expired. That's why there was such a gap between uh, when the technology was developed and now when it's actually been rolled out. Um, so he's um, now an academic. He's obviously he's got some white hair. He's he spent his his, his years um, studying and learning and thinking. And there's a few things to say about the current uh, policies that's be that are being uh, followed um, on the rushed um, approval in the UK of the vaccine program, uh, particularly Pfizer vaccine, as mentioned here. He was asked about this. Was this perhaps? Um, uh, uh, you know, compromising safety. He said, I, I wouldn't say maybe, I would say they did rush it. Uh, you can't take a process that normally takes a decade and push it down to nine months and not cut corners. Um, he was also talking about um, the, uh, the, the different safety checks that apply to different types of um, treatments. So there's, there's a different safety check regime that applies for vaccinations and for gene therapy. He makes the point that the mRNA vaccines are gene therapy, but that the gene therapy checklist essentially wasn't followed by MHRA, um, FDA and other regulators. Um, so th this, this is pointing, I think, at an area we should explore more, a, a very fundamental error in the way the regulatory process uh, was undertaken. A, a very important point. Uh, he then goes on and says, children are a very low risk of hospitalisation and death from COVID-19. Uh, 
in their age groups in their age group, the risks overwhelmingly outweigh the benefits from the vaccine. Now, this is, of course, the exact opposite of what has been stated um, by MHRA, uh, NHS, Health England, Health Scotland, and, uh, and all of the, the various government departments. They're saying the benefits out, outweigh the risks, but of course, they can't substantiate that. They can't provide any evidence. Uh, he's he's forming the opposite view based on, I think, just a rational examination of the, of the statistics. Um, and then he goes on and he, he talks about um, the spontaneous abortion risk. And he says, if you look at the third trimester, he said, if you took out the third trimester data and reanalyzed it, just looking at the women in the first and second trimester, which is essentially what I did, said the risk of spontaneous abortion jumps to above 50%. Well, the figures I were, was was getting was a was about about forty percent. It wasn't above fifty, but it, uh, the 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 point is the same. That if you correct for the sample bias they had in the safety study, um, where most of the women they were looking at were not in the first trimester, which is where miscarriage spontaneous abortion occurs, if you correct for that, then the data shows a major problem. And it's been completely ignored by MHRA, CDC, and all the rest of them. Yes. Okay, thank you for that, David. Now, if you uh, like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, and uh, your support be very much appreciated and much needed. Um, and also, please do uh, share uh, any material that you find on the various uh, platforms. Uh, we're on Rumble, we're on BitChute, we're on Odyssey for video. We're also on Facebook and Twitter still. Uh, we'll see how long, how much longer that lasts. Now let's uh, move on to economic issues and inflation. Um, and uh, well, some excellent news here, David, from the European Central Bank, because their governing body has approved a new uh, monetary policy strategy uh, just at the end of last week. Uh, and the new strategy adopts what they describe as symmetric 2% uh, inflation target over the medium term. So what does that mean? Well, uh, the, the governing, well, let's just have a look and see what they say here. Uh, the Governing Council considers that price stability is best maintained by aiming for a 2% inflation target over the medium term. Um, don't worry, I appreciate that this has uh, got you in stitches, but we'll, we'll, it'll get clearer, clearer in a second. This target is symmetric, meaning negative and positive deviations of inflation from the target are equally undesirable. Uh, but it says uh, when the economy is operating close to the lower bound, on nominal interest rates, it requires especially forceful or persistent monetary policy action to avoid negative deviations from the inflation target becoming entrenched. Okay, so that should uh, please you. Uh, this may also imply a transitory period in which inflation, inflation is moderately above target. So uh, they're trying to lay the groundwork for an explanation for why inflation is going to be above 2% uh, in the uh, transitory period that we're just entering at the moment. Um, now, well, that's what the European Central Bank is saying. Uh, they've also announced an action plan, uh, which is going to include uh, uh, climate change in monetary policy considerations, because that's the way you deal with inflation um, and, uh, and so on. But uh, uh, don't worry. Uh, because Andy Haldane, who of course is the chief economist at the was the chief economist, he's no longer at the Bank of England. He's left now. Uh, he was uh, speaking uh, recently, uh, saying that overall inflation expectations and monetary policy credibility feel more fragile at present than any time since inflation targeting was introduced 
1992. So uh, the UK, the Bank of England introduced inflation targeting in 1992. Apparently the European Central Bank's only doing it at the moment. But anyway, Haldane goes, went on to say, I expect inflation to be closer to 4% and 3% by the end of the year. Um, so that was his position as he was leaving the Bank of England. Uh, but Andrew Bailey, the governor, uh, has just uh, announced that it's important to not overreact to temporarily strong growth and inflation to ensure that the recovery is not undermined by a premature tightening in monetary conditions. So they're in a bit of a pickle here because inflation is ramping up at the time that they don't want to increase interest rates because businesses, some businesses are already struggling. It's very, very unclear. It's a bit like uh, the narrative, narrative out of the government over lockdown and vaccination. There's no consistency here. But uh, look, the question, David, is what is the reality with respect to inflation. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight this story, which is in the press today. This is from The National, but it's right across the press. It was on the BBC Radio 4 Today programme this morning. And of course, it's being blamed on Brexit. Farmers say crops could rot due to lack of seasonal workers. So because the government has completely messed up, uh, because there's nobody in the UK that could possibly pick fruit, it's got to be people from abroad. And because the government has messed up the uh, immigration policy because of Brexit, uh, then uh, crops are going to rot. And farmers are saying, well, the question then is, will we even be in business this time next year? Uh, and one of the, But one of the key points that farmers were making uh, in some of their interviews was that, there's, that the margins are so tight on fruit and vegetable production, and this goes across the board for farming, I suppose, that there is no room for increased salaries. Um, so um, attracting people in the UK to do this work is going to be problematic. So, but increased salaries would push the prices up. Uh, the next problem is that the farmers are, are making the point that there are no delivery drivers, no HGV drivers at the moment. There's a complete lack of availability of, of HGV drivers. Uh, and so it's costing more to, to get uh, product from the farm to the supermarkets uh, as a result. Um, and in fact, this is uh, highlighted here because Little in the uh, Wandsworth Times, Little is saying uh, that the empty shelves that they are already seeing uh, is because lorry, of a lorry driver shortage in the UK. So, David, the point here is that while we've got all this monetarist uh, central bank nonsense justifying the possibility of, of increased inflation over the next period of months, while at the same time they maintain the printing presses, uh, and keep the, the money flowing. Um, there is a physical reality on the ground, uh, which is going to result in rising prices. We've got rising prices of, of uh, fuel. We've got a lack of availability of uh, supply chains. Uh, and we've got uh, problems with, uh, well, the current price levels not able to support a workforce because they rely on foreign labor, which is cheaper, uh, and, but which is not presently available. So you have, a, you have a problem here because the Bank of England and the government and the Treasury all seem to think that the, the economy is like a giant machine and they've got, a, they've got a dial and they can dial it up and dial it down and they can control it all by that. And this is not the way the economy works. Right? It's immensely complicated. It's, it's, um, you have um, interaction between you know, the economically active part of the country is 40-odd million people, each trying to get by in their ordinary lives and um, in the process serving one another. 
And as um, things change, pressures come and, and, and uh, they're, they're forced to do different things. Um, some companies will, will go under because what they're producing is no longer needed. Some com companies will do well. And this is, a, this is the economy responding to the actual needs of society. Right? We're not all still making ploughs and ships and things because the society's moved on and it needs different things. So there needs to be adjustment to this. Now, um, when inflation starts to take off, it dislocates everything. Uh, the, the, it sends all sorts of false messages. People invest in the wrong things. The, there's too much invest. There's, because there's, there's apparently easy money around, there's enormous investment into things that actually are not viable. They're proven to be not viable later on as inflation kicks in and, and companies go bust and people lose, lose everything they have. It's a very nasty process. And the government are simply stoking this. And it's going to be very chaotic, I think, for a very long time out. The fact that there's, we're seeing things like uh, HGV drivers um, being in short supply, well, that's a signal for more people to go and be HGV drivers. And you would normally see that the prices would go up for HGV drivers in, o in order to attract the people you need. And, but, but that has an effect on, on farmers and on every other aspect of, of the economy. All of whom need to all, all of whom need to adjust, you know, to that change, and and that's just one change. There are millions of changes, and they're all happening all the time. It's enormously complex. It's simply uh, to to view it as something that's controlled by setting the central bank interest rate, and by printing bits of green paper or the digital equivalent, is is naive in the extreme, and it's the naivety that will cost us our prosperity. Okay, well, it gets better uh, because you'll be glad to know that the uh, NatWest Group uh, has joined forces with three other major banks uh, to launch Project Carbon, which is a voluntary carbon marketplace because we're going to deal with this physical economic reality by creating uh, carbon credits. We've been talking about this for a long time, but this is a new voluntary marketplace for that. Um, so they've got a nice shiny website. Banks join force to create voluntary carbon marketplace, a global first to help corporate customers better understand the value of carbon credits and reduce their environmental impact. Um, so the other banks uh, are the uh, Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, uh, Uni sorry, uh, Ito, uh, Ito Unibanco, which is from Sao Paulo, and uh, the National Australia Bank. Um, and so they're going to start trading as a pilot project in August to demonstrate how well the voluntary platform is going to work. Uh, and of course, this again uh, brings us back to Mark Carney, uh, who is uh, Boris's uh, climate expert uh, and currently the United Nations uh, Special Envoy for Climate Action. Um, so uh, really, what are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, certain people being able to justify continuing running their private jets and so on by investing in carbon credits, which, uh, and of course the other, the counterparty, the other side of that deal will be some uh, African country where that'll get some money because they're not producing the same amount of carbon and, and so on. It's basically a, a shell game, David. Yes, but uh, I suspect there will, there will be actual losers in this as well. Um, Brewdog, the Elgin-based craft brew company, 
um, are are busy um, buying up bits of the highlands to plant forests, and it's all going to be very green, very lovely. You understand, but they they did seem to be evicting um, some gamekeepers, so the gamekeepers will lose. Um, and I suspect a fair number of the Africans might end up losing as well, because that tends to be the way it goes. It's the people who have relatively little power will tend to lose, and the people who have relatively great power will tend to win. And, um, yeah, but what are we trading? We're trading um, indulgences, are we not? A modern version of indulgences. Uh, I think that's uh, it's a fair uh, analogy. But look, it gets better now. Uh, the, Google, the, the head of Alphabet that owns Google and YouTube and so on was, uh, well, he was speaking to Amal Rajan on the BBC this morning and he was uh, uh, talking about threats to internet freedom. I, I thought it was really ironic that he was talking about uh, countries restricting the flow of information and censorship and all this kind of stuff while his company, YouTube, is doing its best to kick uh, everybody with any kind of... Uh, view of uh, its channel. But anyway, the hypocrisy is amazing. But what were they mainly talking about? Well, they were mainly talking about uh, global tax once again. And so we'd be glad to know that Rishi Sunak has, has been to the G20. Uh, there he is at the G20. He's taken his uh, landmark deal from the G7 to the G20. And they've now uh, confirmed with the G20 the, uh, the new global uh, tax regime, which is going to mean that uh, any uh, global company like Google that's uh, operating in multiple jurisdictions will be paying at least 15% uh, uh, corporation tax in any of the countries where it's uh, doing business. Um, not quite sure how exactly how that's going to work yet. But anyway, this was following two days of uh, G20 uh, meetings in Venice, including an informal breakfast meeting of the G7, uh, chaired by Rishi Sunak and the finance minister's pledged to full support for the deal and caused, uh, called for outstanding issues to be swiftly addressed and so on. So let's have a look briefly at what he said. I'm delighted that the full weight of the G20 is behind this historic tax deal. We'll make sure that our global tax system is fit for purpose in a digital age and crucially is fair. So um, there you go, uh, a global tax uh, uh, deal system, which UK column told everybody was coming in 2013, but uh, don't worry about that. Now let's uh, move on to uh, parliamentary standards, uh, David. And uh, well, we're starting with a little bit of video. Just uh, introduce this if you could. Well, we have uh, a lady called Claudia Webb, who is a um, Labour MP. And she's asking a question of Dominic Raab uh, on uh, international uh, geopolitics and uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, I picked this so that you would see the, the sort of grasp of the subject area that our parliamentarians are demonstrating these days. Claudia, you want to come in? Thank you. Thank you, Chair, and I hope I'm not going to be asking questions that you have already answered, but let me um, just start with a quickfire one on, on LaRue's, as we've just spoken about that. Why does the government not consider legal action to be necessary in the case of LaRue's? In the case of, I didn't catch the name. Belarus. So why, so, why don't we consider, sorry, what? Legal action well, on why, why doesn't the government... Why does the government not consider legal action to be necessary in the case of Belarus? What is the legal action that you're proposing? 
Well, I, th I mean, I'm asking you the question. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm well, do, I, I mean, does, the, does who, the government who, who, consider who, who, legal action to be necessary at all? Sorry, forgive me. I was, what I was trying to clarify is who do you want us to sue and where? Oops. So, um, yeah, this this is... <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm actually astonished. I mean, I, I, I would have thought that I wouldn't have been surprised at, at the level of stupidity of our, of our uh, wise overlords. But they still managed to shock me. That was quite shockingly bad. Um, utterly, not just on, not just poorly briefed and, 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 and not knowledgeable subject area, but without it would appear any general understanding of how the world works at all. So you see this and you think, well, that person is not in any way qualified for the position she holds, which is, of course, part of the joys of a representative democracy um, with the party system, because you get what you're given, basically. And um, yes, that was, I thought, quite spectacular, Mike. Uh, yes, and uh, it began, it, I'm almost speechless, actually, but she didn't even seem to know which country she was speaking about, because she, uh, she said Burus. Barus, yeah, I don't. I, I, that threw me as well at the start. Barus, I don't. But someone translated for her, and then she corrected that. Um, well, no, she didn't but, correct it. Somebody <laughs> corrected it for her, and then so somebody had to picked it up. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yes, that. So this this was not the finest moment in in the history of our ancient parliament. Um, moving to Scotland's less than ancient parliament. Um, and we have uh, James Dornan. Now, James Dornan promised us faithfully that he was going to retire. Um, and, and he didn't. The wee crater didn't go. He, he announced his retirement and then decided he, he was going to stand, only to find that his, his constituency was down for an all-female shortlist. But, but, you know, there are ways around these problems if you've got political connections. So he's back. And uh, he's not happy with um, Mr. Rhys Mogg. Um, so he, he said that uh, he would rot in hell. This is a reference to, it's a Twitter spat um, over a, a bill that, um, that, that states that border force officers will be able to use reasonable force if necessary to um, turn away UK asylum seekers or um, uh, economic migrants. Um, who are crossing the channel in some numbers. Uh, commenting on the video, Jacob Rees-Mogg said, the bans, this is Jacob Rees-Mogg being Jacob Rees-Mogg, the bans of blighters bringing illegal entrance to blighty will be broken up, broken up by this brilliant borders bill. Mr. Dornan uh, replied in his um, private Twitter account that who the MP a practicing Catholic who is anti-abortion based on what he claims are his religious beliefs, Donnan replied, hope you remember this the next time you go to confession. You and your cronies are already, already responsible for the death of thousands and, you'll now, uh, and you're now happy to see the most desperate people in the world suffer and drown. If your God exists, you will undoubtedly rot in hell. Now, this is very interesting in many regards. Firstly, 
Um, in, in Scotland, that is criminal, right? If you're not politically connected, that's hate speech, um, targeted harassment, that's criminal. He, would get a, he could get arrested for that comment by Police Scotland. But of course he won't because he's politically corrected and therefore exempt from the law. Point one. Point two, um, it, he is from the Roman Catholic Irish community in the west of Scotland and spends a great deal of time um, criticising uh, Scotland and Scottish culture about how unfair it is to the Roman Catholic uh, uh, ethnically Irish community in the west of Scotland. Um, it's interesting to see him use, if you God exists, uh, you will undoubtedly rot in hell. That, that uh, the political leadership uh, and the, the left-wing ideology of um, what you would call the Roman Catholic community in the west of Scotland is virulently anti-Roman Catholic now. It's very strange, but they are massively anti the Roman church. Uh, and you see that coming out there, which is an interesting point. And um, he, he's also um, uh, uh, objecting to any, any use of force. And he's, he's also uh, assuming that the people who are coming across the channel uh, are justified in doing so. Uh, and we've we've no moral ability to stop them be because of their um, unenviable position, uh, because they are they are poor and, and migrants. So the, the the rightness of their case um, equates to the unfairness of their position relative to us. Um, this is the left wing ideology. Rightness is is and moral moral worth is solely tied up with uh, whether you are equal or not. If you are unequal, then you are, you are sinned against and you have the, the ability and the right to take action to level things up. Equality is everything. So this is the left-wing ideology coming out in his belief system. So an, an interesting little outburst. Um, it would be, if, if I was to say it, I could get arrested for that. But James Dorman can say it and won't get arrested because um, the law doesn't apply to him as it does to me. Um, okay, right. Let's uh, move on to international stuff now, just very briefly. Now, of course, David, uh, we've been talking about uh, defence union in the EU for many, many years. And uh, over the last couple of years, uh, it seems to have stalled. Not very much has happened. Um, but, uh, well, perhaps we're starting to see uh, things move forward again. Um, so the EU has decided uh, it's creating a strategic compass uh, this is typical EU nonsense, uh, but uh, it's uh, designed to address this uh, notion that uh, the Defence Union so far has been a lot of talk and not very much action. Um, so this is the uh, Foreign Affairs Council meeting is taking place today, and EU Defence is uh, very much back on the uh, on the agenda. It's going to be chaired as usual by Joseph Burrell, who's the EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. Um, and so they're, dis they're discussing the development of a strategic compass. Um, this future document should pave the way to a coherent strategic approach and update our common understanding of threats and challenges leading to a common strategic culture. Now, as I say, of course, that has been uh, a problem for them over the last few years because while they've got PESCO and CARD uh, and the European Defence Fund uh, and so on, 
these things haven't been brought together yet into a cohesive defense union. Uh, but David, it looks like uh, they're attempting to at least brand uh, the next steps. Yeah, it, something stirs. Um, we noticed that the, uh, um, the, the movement in this uh, regard um, became uh, silenced when uh, the Brexit um, process was getting to its crescendo. Uh, when uh, the, the British elections, for example, were coming up, the, where Boris got elected, and that was essentially a referendum on Brexit um, by another means. Um, everything in the EU land went quiet on military union. Uh, it's starting to stir now. Um, the, I think Brexit really threw them, because we're such a large part of the EU military um, capability and EU military industrial complex, um, having Britain taken out of that, at least in part, and at least officially, um, was a, a major problem. And there seemed to be a period of a year or two where there, was, where there was drift and uncertainty. I think what we're seeing here is the start of the next move. We'll need to watch it closely. Uh, yes, and of course, uh, one of the drivers for that has been U.S. involvement uh, because they've now got involved in uh, in PESCO. So the United States has effectively given the EU the go-ahead for this. Uh, but in the meantime, I just want to very briefly mention this article in Newsweek, if it'll come up. Uh, Russia says U.S. allies doomed to failure if they try to test Black Sea borders. Um, so this is uh, the Russian embassy in the United States seems to have sent a statement to Newsweek. It's not clear why they sent it to Newsweek in particular, but they did. Um, and uh, they're saying maneuvers performed in the immediate proximity of the Russian shores uh, with the use of US and its allies destroyers, as well as uh, transport and landing ships are a provocation. Such exercises are, are uh, sorry, such exercises with uh, imitation of landing operations and special forces Training activities undermine security in the Black Sea region. Um, and they said that uh, imagine a situation where uh, Russia conducts drills in the Gulf of Mexico. This could have sparked uh, a storm of indignation. Well, we've had this, uh, this comment from them before, but uh, they're making it again. Uh, we call on our partners to comprehend one simple thing. The population of Crimea in 2014 already made its choice. It must be respected. The attempts of the West to, to test Russia's determination to defend its territorial integrity uh, with such provocative exercises is doomed to failure. Um, so they're still pretty upset about that. Uh, as I say, not clear. we're not entirely clear why uh, Newsweek got that and nobody else. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that is, the, uh, that is uh, what the Russians are saying. Now, uh, David, we're vastly out of time, so we've only got two or three minutes for this section. Um, but, uh, well, you've got a final piece of video for us. Yes, so this is uh, from the San Francisco Gay Men's um, Coral um, uh, Group. Um, and uh, they've been getting somewhat um, controversial um, intentionally, I think. There's been a lot of pushback, there's been a lot of debate about this video. Um, and it's, it's entitled A Message from the Gay Community. Um, and I've got a very short clip just to give you an idea of what it's like.
Now, it, so that's, that's the, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, um, a message from them. Um, the song goes on, I'll read a few of the lyrics out. Um, you say we all lead uh, lives you don't respect, but you're just frightened. You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. Funny, this one's you're correct. We'll convert your children, happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, subtly and you will barely notice it. Just like uh, you're worried they'll change their group of friends, you won't approve of where they go at night, and you'll be disgusted when they start learning things online that you kept from their site. We'll convert your children, yes we will, reaching one and all, and there's really no escaping it because even grandma likes RuPaul. The world's getting kinder, Gen, C, Gen Z's gayer than grinder. We're coming for them, we're coming for your children. The gay agenda is coming home, the gay agenda is here. Now, this was viewed uh, with uh, a degree of horror by what you would say socially conservative elements within the United States, and there was a lot of pushback. Initially, the song was pulled. They then put it back up and said, no, we're not going to self-censor. Um, we've got here um, a, a, a group called American Greatness uh, have looked at the team that's, uh, uh, that's, that's written the song uh, and found that they were um, in, in controversial areas earlier in uh, 2020, uh, as they wrote a musical um, romanticizing the um, Afghan dancing boys. Uh, so they, they, they report that uh, they wrote a thing called Boy Play as a custom in, Af in Afghanistan involving uh, child sexual abuse between older men and younger adolescent males or boys known as dancing boys. The boys are trained to dance seductively in front of the older men at parties and are often sexually abused. The play was entitled The Boy Who Danced On Air. The BBC described it as a love story between a 16-year-old boy and another younger boy caught in the same practice. Um, so when this musical was seen by an Afghan um, uh, um, emigrant uh, who was living in the United States, a refugee who was living in the United States, uh, they said they watched 40 minutes and had to turn it off. Quote, I felt uncomfortable, misunderstood, frantic and anxious all at the same time, she said. I cringed every time the actors tried to uh, be believable and every time the audience had a laugh at the expense of real Afghan pain. Uh, she added, the writers poured gasoline and lit a match on many of the wounds we are working hard to heal. So they, they are at the very least prone to be vastly insensitive to the actual pain of people who are affected by, for example, uh, child sexual abuse. Um, their response, uh, uh, Ross and Sohn, the, the, the people who, who wrote this song, uh, their response was, we just wanted to respond to some of the alt-right anti-gay hate we've, we've been getting uh, on our song, A Message from the Gay Community. Uh, this willful intolerance, intolerance and aggressive hate against LGBT community is exactly why we wrote the obviously tongue-in-cheek song, uh, taking an epithet used against the community and turning it into a song about tolerance. It actually wasn't a song about tolerance. It was a song about, um, about uh, one ideology winning over another. It wasn't about tolerance. It was a song about ideological domination, actually. Um, uh, thanks to the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus uh, for being an advocate for us and our community. 
the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus um, stated uh, that they are dedicated to being role models, teaching and spreading the message of love, inclusion, humour and celebration through our music. We will believe uh, we believe most fervently in open dialogue, communication and free speech. We'll continue to do this through music. We invite everyone to join us. I wonder if that's true, because there are many things that are affecting the gay community that you can't talk about. You certainly not with things, with, with organisations in the LGBT line. Um, there are many messages we're getting from people who are, um, who are gay men who are having um, a great deal of pain and trouble to do with the gay lifestyle and that we think in the column are important and we're going to have to talk about. And I really seriously wonder whether uh, organisations like the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus would be dedicated to open dialogue uh, in these areas. I, I suspect they wouldn't, but they, they say they are, so let's, let's hope that that proves to be true. Uh, we'll we'll be in touch with them and we'll find out. Yes, okay. Thank you for that, David. And we're just going to end uh, with uh, with one final thought. Final slide. Uh, this is a lady holding a, uh, a, a banner, a sign, uh, quoting George Orwell. Journal journalism is printing what someone else does not want printed. Everything else is public relations. Amen to that. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, look, we're going to uh, briefly apologise because we're not going to do an extra today because uh, David and I have to do a little bit of uh, training, uh, I think uh, we might say. Uh, so uh, hopefully uh, next week um, we'll be doing things a bit more efficiently. But uh, we're, So we're going to give that a skip uh, today. Undoubtedly, we'll do one on Wednesday. But in the meantime, we will be back 1pm as usual on Wednesday and uh, hope to see you then. Thank you very much, David, and thank you for joining us. Uh, see you Wednesday. Bye-bye.